He is the anti-Christ, the anti-Jesus, the anti-Messiah. He sets himself up as God in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. He, he causes abomin an abomination that causes desolation. All these things, right? But the reality is that's our perspective. That's God's perspective that he's given us. But if you can put that aside for a second, the reality is very different for everybody else. People will love this guy. To the world, he will not be repulsive. He'll be the opposite of that. Energizing, widely received, welcomed with open arms, proclaimed as the, as the great world leader. He'll essentially be a world dictator that leads humanity into what appears to be a golden age. He's called the Antichrist because he will be Antichrist in the sense of instead of Christ where we should all be unified under the one who has given his life and was raised from the dead to save us under that name, under that banner. Now there will be people who are unified under a different banner. And this guy will set himself up as, I am basically Jesus, but not Jesus. He will offer the benefits of Jesus's kingdom, peace, justice, mercy for all, but without Jesus. He will offer the kingdom, so to speak, without the king. It's good to be with you. As Pastor Jordan said, uh, we are continuing on in this summer-long series uh, through the book of 1 John called Love and Light. Uh, hopefully, as we've mentioned before, you've had a chance or multiple chances to read through this book in its entirety. probably takes you probably 10 to 15, maybe 20 minutes to read through the entire thing. Uh, really powerful, powerful book with lots of uh, famous passages in it. It's very loaded. And so uh, it was not difficult for us as we plotted out this series for the summer to be able to spend, I think it comes down to 14, comes out to 14 weeks uh, in a book that's only five chapters. It's because it's so rich, uh, it's so deep. There are so many uh, strong statements that John makes, so many big, significant things uh, that were relevant 2,000 years ago that are still uh, every bit as relevant today. So I want to go ahead and read the text that we're going to be in this morning. Uh, here first, and then as usual, uh, we'll come back around to it. So uh, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you can. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. And we're in, obviously, First John. Uh, we're in chapter 2. Uh, and these are verses 18 through 27. Uh, so a fairly significant chunk today. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as, as it has taught you, remain, or some translations say, abide in him. Big stuff. Uh, right now, uh, my favorite show, uh, some of you have talked with about this and I've gotten you kind of hooked on it too, is a show called Alone. Anybody? I know a few of you are into it. Alone uh, is technically a show that is uh, produced uh, by the History Channel, and that's where the episodes air in, in real time in terms of as you keep up with it. But um, a while back, Netflix picked up season six of it, and that's how I was introduced to it. Uh, and usually, I think, if you look at it, some of my favorite shows throughout my life 
I relate to on some level. So I used to love, love, love the West Wing. Anybody? West Wing fans. So I love it because I love leadership. I love leadership dynamics. I love uh, the thought process that go into making difficult decisions under pressure when things are complex. I love, uh, obviously, uh, writing and making speeches. And so I was fascinated by that show and the nature of the characters and all that. So I can relate to that on some level. I have some interest in that. Uh, my, probably my all-time favorite show uh, is Seinfeld. Uh, and so I relate to Seinfeld because it's like my kind of humor. I mean, there's not many days that go by that I don't make some sort of Seinfeld reference. Uh, there's so many things they talk about in there that I'm like, that is, yes, that is exactly like so true. And I, I mean, it's just one of those things. Uh, but I don't relate at all to alone, right? Not at all. So the concept of the show is that they take these people who have this unbelievable skill set as basically survivalists. A lot of these people are uh, former military uh, special forces. Some of them live in the middle of nowhere already, Alaska or all these other random places. And they live and have these survival skills. And there's all kinds of different names and titles these people do, like um, like basically caveman era type stuff. And they just do all, they know all this crazy stuff. And they take these people and uh, they drop them off in this remote region somewhere. Uh, a lot of them have been up in, near the Arctic or in British Columbia in this remote region. And uh, they're allowed to take 10 items. They can pick their 10 items, but they can't be any food and they can't be any kind of firearm and they can't be any kind of high-powered bow. Uh, so they can have a really rudimentary bow and arrow. Uh, they get these 10 items uh, and they drop them and they each get their own kind of plot of land uh, that they get to subsist on. And then uh, it's last man or woman standing for who can ride it out the longest. So they're responsible to procure 100% of their food. They're responsible to build 100% of their shelter. Uh, all the things that go into that, uh, they are responsible for. And it's been called the most real reality show ever because the, the thing with this that makes it so cool is uh, they have to do all their own filming as well. There's no camera crew with them. They give them their own cameras. They do a boot camp in advance of the show that teaches them how to use this camera equipment and all this stuff to make sure they're proficient in it. And then they have to film 100% of their time there. And so it's fascinating, fascinating stuff that emerges in terms of the human psychology and human behavior and what happens when you spend that much time, right, in solitude. My family and I just watched, uh, rewatched, Carrie and I did, but showed us Lincoln for the first time, Castaway the other night. You remember that? movie with Tom Hanks and like you just realize like yeah that's what would happen if you were alone on a deserted island for four years with a volleyball like you know like you would do some weird stuff and so you see it's very fascinating show and the reason I can't relate to it is I would last less than 24 hours like out there and I'm not even exaggerating like I have no none of those skills whatsoever like none uh, none at all. And in fact, there was one of the, and I won't, this isn't ruining anything by any stretch uh, at all. They're in season eight right now. And where they're at in season eight, or the location is the most densely uh, populated area in all of North America in terms of grizzly bears. Uh, keep in mind, they have no firearms. They got bear spray and they got like some like these like rocket things and noisemakers. I'm like, come on. Like, I don't know. I don't trust those. But, uh, like in one of the seasons, there was a guy who had a wolverine coming into his camp all the time, and uh, it was trying to steal some meat that he'd gotten. And so one time he, he saw it, and he shot it with an arrow, and he pinned it to the ground, uh, but it was still alive. And so then he ran up with a hatchet and killed it. And I'm like, I can't relate to that, like, at all. If there's a wolverine in my camp, I'm calling and being like, come get me. Like, come get me. I'm out. So, but, <laughs> so I can't relate. But the, the thing that's interesting is this. They get dropped in this area, and it usually seems like they get dropped in the early fall, and they know that in these areas, winter comes earlier than it does in other areas, because they're pretty far north. And so what they know, they have to strategize. They have to, they know a few things. They know that the keys are going to be uh, food, obviously. People have lost insane amounts of weight on this show. It's a great diet, by the way, if you want to try it, which is just not eating anything but like twigs and berries for, you know, three months. But um, they know that they have to get food, but they also have to have shelter. They have to have those things in place. Because when the winter comes, if they don't have proper food, they don't have the supplies they need, and if they don't have the shelter they need from those conditions, they are going to be in serious, serious trouble. 
And what's true in the natural in that sense is also true in the spiritual. So here's our first big statement for this morning. If you are not well prepared for current and future spiritual seasons, you may die a slow and painful spiritual death. Now that may sound extreme, but I promise you it is not. And I'll explain that as we go. If you are not well prepared for current and future spiritual seasons, you may die a slow and painful spiritual death. This is a bit of what John is addressing in these verses this morning. So let's reread the first three verses of this passage, and then we're going to really take a deep, deep dive into these and I think talk about these texts maybe from a perspective you haven't heard before. So let's reread 18 through 20. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. You just want to leave this up for one second. John makes four major statements. I have some of them italicized, and I forgot to italicize one of them. He makes four major statements. You can go ahead and go to the next slide. First one is this. It's the last hour, right? Dear children, this is the last hour. Number two, he says, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Number three, many Antichrists have already come and are presently here amongst us. And number four, They left us because they were never really a part of us. So those four, it's the last hour. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming. Many Antichrists have already come, and they left us because they were never really a part of us. As you read these verses now that I've sort of singled these three out, some of you may have gotten excited and been like, yes, the last days, like the final hour, the end times. Like, I love this stuff. Like, let's geek out. I've been waiting for us to talk about Revelation, you know, as a church and get into all the symbolism and all the crazy stuff. Yes, finally, like, we're going to settle it all once and for all. Like, what the truth is of the end times, right? Some of you are pumped about that. Maybe not. Uh, Others of you might have been like, oh, my gosh. Like, the church has been great up to this point. Like, I don't want to hear about the Antichrist. I don't want to hear about the end times. Don't talk about the mark of the beast or the great tribulation or, you know, the number 666. I've already read all the left behind novels. I've already seen all the left behind movies, the ones with Kirk Cameron and Nicolas Cage, the lowest rated movies in history, by the way. Uh, I'm so over the subject. And I brought a friend to church today. Like, this is super uncomfortable right now. They're going to think I'm nuts now. So to those of you who may be excited, don't be uh, we're, we're not going there in the ways that you might hope. Uh, and to those of you who are nervous, don't be, we aren't going there in the ways that you would fear. Uh, this message isn't going to be some crazy abstract dive into the symbolism of revelation. Uh, the reality is that these section, this section here, these three verses are actually one of the most practical portions of 1 John. It doesn't maybe read that way at first glance, but it's actually incredibly practical. So as we get into things, as we talk about this passage, John uses a couple of phrases that we have to give clear definition to. If we don't give clear definition to them and have a mutual understanding of what he's actually talking about, nothing's going to land the way that it should. Nothing's going to hit how I would like it to hit. So let's spend some time, a significant portion actually of our time this morning, just giving definition to these terms, because this is really the meat right now of what we're talking about. So the first one is the last hour. The last hour. So, as plain as I can say it, the straight up, no nonsense truth is that yes, we absolutely are living in the last hour. That is absolutely true. As the Apostle Paul said, the time is short. And it's getting shorter every day. Right? From the time of Jesus until now, As Jesus himself said, we are living in the year of the Lord's favor. When Jesus stood up and gave his mission statement and read from the scroll of Isaiah, 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for those in slavery, to give sight to the blind, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's not obviously literally talking about 365 days. He's talking about a season, a period of time. From the time that he showed up and the incarnation happened and those 33-ish years that culminated in the resurrection and the ascension until he comes back. This is the year of the Lord's favor. However long it is in terms of actual physical years as we define them, we are in the year, proverbially speaking, of the Lord's favor. This is the time right now where people are able to repent and turn to Jesus. This is the time where they have the option to recognize him as Savior, live their lives in response to him as Lord. This is the time where God has made a way, where he has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility, where he has torn the veil in the temple, where he has done all these things, where now we have access to him. We all have this freedom that we can come to him. The way that I've put it for many years, if you remember this game, is when somebody calls Ollie Ollie oxen free. You remember that? It's an old German saying. But it basically means everybody can come in now without any kind of harm coming to them, with any danger. You can come back to home base no matter where you're at, and you're, and you're fine. This is the season where Jesus is calling that out. There will be a time, and it is when he comes again, where the year of the Lord's favor will no longer be in existence. That will end that season, the year of the Lord's favor. So we are literally living in the last days. We are living in this period between when Jesus showed up and went to the cross and was resurrected and then ascended, and when he comes back again to judge the living and the dead. So we are living in the last hour. God's redemptive plan has already concluded. Jesus has come with his death and resurrection. He ushered in the last days. Nothing else must occur, right? Hebrews says it like this, and in previous times and different generations, God spoke to us in many different ways through prophets and all these different things. But in these last days, he has spoken. And there's a finality in that in the Greek that's literally, that's the final word. Jesus is the final word. He has spoken. His redemptive plan has culminated. His word is Jesus Christ revealed, showing who, what God is like and how we can have access to God and how we can experience the kingdom now and also eternal life forever. It's all done. We're presently, let me restate it, we're presently living in the final epoch of human history. It's important that we understand the seasons. We are presently living in the final epoch of human history. And some, the common question is, I don't understand. Like if it was the last hour in John's day 2,000 years ago, why hasn't Jesus returned yet? All right? It's a common question, like I said, and the answer is real simple. It's that God does not relate to time in the same way that we do. God can deal and does deal in the currency of human time, but he's also outside of time. In fact, you could even say that God is the definition of time, which is a whole deep thing we won't go into today. But he can deal in the currency of human time, and he does, but he's outside of it, and he in some ways gives definition to it. 2 Peter 3.8 actually tells us, with the Lord, and you've heard this verse before, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Now, that's not a direct mathematical equation. It's not literal. One day equals a thousand years. The point Peter's making is there's a massive difference between how we measure time and how God measures time, Right? So the last hour or the last days, as John uses them here, are phrases that describe a kind of time, right? Not a duration of time. You get that? It's describing a kind of time, not a duration of time. In other words, Christians, because we, that term didn't exist pre-Jesus. So Christians, little Christs, Jesus followers, we've always been living in the last hour, in the final days, Right? And we understand that, right? We say things to give a little bit more context to this. Have you ever said to somebody like, man, I just, I had a really hard time with that season in my life, right? Really hard time. You're not, you're talking about a period. You're not talking about, I had a really hard 31 days, 22 hours, 16 minutes, and 14 seconds. But you don't go into that kind of specific. You say, I had a really hard time. 
and you're describing a, a season, you're describing a kind of time that you had, not a specific amount. The last hour began as soon as Jesus ascended into heaven. It began in John's time, and it's been growing in intensity ever since. This is what the Apostle Paul is referring to in Romans when he talks about creation groaning, an eager expectation that it will someday be delivered and returned back to its original perfect state. And he compares it to a woman in labor, right? A woman who is pregnant. And as it gets closer to the time of delivering the child, the size <laughs> increases. The intensity, as you ladies that have kids would know, it increases. The pain, the longing, the, all the discomfort, all that stuff, it generally increases. And it's not necessarily a sign. Uh, in fact, it shouldn't be at all that if something is wrong. What it is a sign of is that something is coming that a new birth is coming, this thing we've been longing for, expecting, hoping for, that it's, it's about to arrive. And so the, the way that we feel about the earth sometimes and the world and the nature of things, some of the stuff we talked about last week, it's natural because creation itself, right, which was all messed up after the fall, is groaning in expectation of renewal and restoration and all of these things. And we are doing the same. It's been growing in intensity. And this doesn't mean just for the sake of clarity that John or Paul, for that matter, thought that Jesus had to return in their lifetime. They may have, you know, he could have. Uh, it doesn't mean they had to think that. It just means that they knew and were able to diagnose, like we talked about last week, exactly what era they were living in. And they referred to it as the last days or the last times. Let me make it clear this morning. This is how we're supposed to feel. This is something that, is, is incredibly important in terms of your worldview and how you go about your life. The, the Bible from New Testament, I mean, all the way through the New Testament is incredibly instructive about this. Jesus talks all the time about being aware that time is not promised. Tomorrow is not promised. There are realities in terms of how our lives play out and realities of that we don't know when Jesus is returning that should give us a sense of urgency a sense of awareness, a sense that there's a season that we're in right now and we should be prepared for it. We should be vigilant. We should be aware of it. We should act accordingly. Christians are to feel this way. We must know the days we're living in. We must consider the season. If you don't know the hour and the time you're living in, you're in grave danger of being blindsided. You're not aware of what's going on. You're in danger of being blindsided. Instead, you're to be aware. To be aware, Ephesians, Paul says this. He says, be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil, he says. I think we can all agree, as we've talked about this past couple of weeks, not much has changed, right? The days were evil when Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. The days are evil. If they're still evil, we should probably heed the advice. The advice is probably still good too. Make the most of every opportunity. Don't be unwise. Be wise. Be careful how you live. The Bible talks about this throughout the New Testament and even some in the Old. But as we get closer to this arrival, as we continue to, to grow in size, so to speak, and the creation groans in eager expectation, we're told that people will lose their minds and seemingly uh, their faith in this last hour. So we have to be prepared. We must know what we believe and why we believe it. We're going to talk a bit about more of that, a little bit more on that here in just a minute. But that was a long explanation of the last hour. So let's talk about the next term that John uses, real fun one, the Antichrist. Notice how John reminds the church that they have heard that the Antichrist is coming. So he takes it for granted. He's aware that they already know about this. This isn't something he's bringing to their attention or he's educating them on. This is something that they've already been made aware of. This might be surprising to some of you, maybe to a lot of you, but the word Antichrist only occurs in John's letters in the Bible. Only place. 
Nowhere else will you find it. One place, one place only, that's in John's writings. And it's one, two, three, four times is all. Antichrist, I mean, understandably so, gets some attention, but it's interesting, only four mentions, all from, all from John. And even though, again, it was only John who used this, the church was very familiar with this teaching that the Antichrist is coming because he'd been talked about in different ways, in different forms, in different terms, really from the beginning of biblical history. In the Old Testament, the prophet Daniel had spoken of a future prince who would come and desecrate the temple in Jerusalem and would rebel against God and against his Messiah, Jesus. Daniel says this prince will position himself as a peacemaker by initiating a seven-year peace treaty, but he'll break it within three and a half years by committing what Daniel names as an an abomination which causes desolation. Kind of a mouthful. Interesting phrase, an abomination, which you know what that is which causes desolation, and I think you know what that means. You put those together, it's a very intense term, an abomination in which causes desolation. After, after Daniel spoke and prophesied about this, there were actually many foreign armies that came and invaded uh, and whose leaders desecrated the temple. They did stuff to the temple in Jerusalem that was not great, but none of these fell directly in line with the specific prophecy that Daniel had given. So the church knew They were still waiting for a further outbreak of evil led by a figure who was contrary to and in place of Jesus. They knew the true desolator, so to speak, was still to come, and John's the one who gives him the name Antichrist. Let's look at some other scriptures. First, how the Apostle Paul refers to this person. In 2 Thessalonians, probably one of the most well-known texts regarding the Antichrist in the New Testament, Paul says this, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come. He's talking about the return of Christ and some different things. That day will not come until the rebellion occurs. And he calls him the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And that's some intense stuff. The church in John's day believed that such a figure would come, bringing with him first, as Daniel prophesied, unprecedented world peace, world harmony, times of prosperity. And then before anybody knew it, he would also bring with him then after unprecedented global calamity, unprecedented global destruction and division. And you think things are bad now. The stuff that's likely to come is is far, far worse. Jesus said himself, and used Isaiah's words. He said, after these days where the abomination that causes desolation takes place, Jesus says this in Mark's gospel. Mark quotes him as saying, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive. If possible, who? Even the elect. That's a term for those people that believe they're Christians, that are following Jesus if possible, to deceive even Christians. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Again, this is Jesus, and this is where he quotes Isaiah. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Guys, these aren't my words. (laughs) I'm not just giving you like a fear factor message this morning. This is biblical stuff. Rightly divided, trust me, in context. Jesus talking about what the stuff's going to look like. Now, shift gears just for a moment with me. And try to forget, if you're familiar with it already, and most of us probably are on some level, but try to forget just for one second or just put it aside about all the imagery that's used in Revelation, right? All the different animal figures with the different kinds of heads and horns and wings and all the crazy stuff that you've probably seen depicted it in different kinds of art or film or whatever that you've read in books, including the Bible. And try to forget about what Daniel says concerning this man. Like in the apocalyptic passages, he's depicted as a beast or a horn, the substance right of nightmares. Like when I was a kid growing up in a super strict fundamentalist Southern Baptist church where they love to talk about the end times, like I was terrified 
like terrified. And I mean, I can laugh about it now, but it wasn't funny then. <laughs> like I was like terrified. Like, am I going to be here? Like when the Antichrist comes? Like, I really hope not. Jesus, like, come back. Or like, can I just, I, like, I want to die before that happens. Like they made it, I mean, way too scary. Like it was almost, and I, I've talked about this some before, but it was almost like Satan and his, his minions were, were way more powerful than God somehow. And so it was just this kind of eminent fear that was always thrown our direction. But it's the substance of nightmares, and I get that. But remember that these images that we're, that we're told, okay, that we're given here, those reveal God's perspective on things. He is the anti-Christ, the anti-Jesus, the anti-Messiah. He sets himself up as God in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. He, he causes abomin an abomination that causes desolation. All these things, right? But the reality is that's our perspective. That's God's perspective that he's given us. But if you can put that aside for a second, the reality is very different for everybody else. People will love this guy. People will absolutely love him, right? To the world, he will not be repulsive. He'll be the opposite of that. Energizing, widely received, welcomed with open arms, proclaimed as the, as the great world leader. He'll essentially be a world dictator that leads humanity into what appears to be a golden age until he shows his true colors. And then the judgment of God is released upon him. Think about it. From the world's perspective, they're not going to be like, oh, this guy's yeah, the Antichrist. We should avoid that guy. No. The, the masses, the masses, by and large, will embrace this guy. Now think about right now, just for a second, in our polarized, just in the United States, in our massively polarized political climate, right? Think about what it would take, first of all, which isn't probably even an answerable question, but what it would look like, if you can even conceive of this, for somebody to come along who would be able to get everyone on the same page. I mean, think about that. I mean, that's insane, isn't it? I mean, we've really never had that but this is definitely one of the worst political climates we've had in terms of that polarization and all kinds of stuff. What would it take for somebody to get everybody like, we love this guy. Yes, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Independent, Green Party, name your other stuff. We all love this guy. And that's just the United States. Think about that globally, what it would take. Because you have communist nations and you have you know, democratic republics and you have everything in between. What's it going to take for somebody, what would somebody have to have from a charisma standpoint, from an intelligence standpoint, from a demonstration of power standpoint, to get everybody, for the most part, on the same page? That's why, he, on some level at least, he's called the Antichrist because he will be Antichrist in the sense of instead of Christ where we should all be unified under the one who has given his life and was raised from the dead to save us under that name, under that banner. Now there will be people who are unified under a different banner. And this guy will set himself up as, I am basically Jesus, but not Jesus. Here's what he will do. This is kind of what I was driving at. He will offer the benefits of Jesus's kingdom do we have a slide for this one? Maybe not. I will say it. He will offer the benefits. There we go. He will offer the benefits of Jesus's kingdom, peace, justice, mercy for all, but without Jesus. He will offer the kingdom, so to speak, without the king. And that's why people will be so widely deceived. And he will try even to deceive the elect. And the church, according to John in this text, has heard that he is coming. Now, let me make one, two quick statements before we move on. Don't misunderstand. The church was not doing what people have done here in the last, we'll just say 50 years. Uh, they weren't sitting around trying to figure out who the Antichrist might be. They weren't trying to decode biblical stuff and looking all around the world and going like, oh, it's going to be that guy or it's that guy or that guy's the Antichrist or whatever. They weren't doing that. And this is not the church's job. If you have ever tried to do that, just stop. Like, don't, don't worry about that. That's not your job. Your job is quite different, and it's actually very clear in Scripture what you are to be doing. 
we are not, as the church, we are not looking and hoping and wondering and thinking about the Antichrist. We aren't looking for the Antichrist, but Jesus Christ. We are looking forward to the second coming. <laughs> we are praying to speed that arrival, trusting that obviously God knows the right time for that to happen. We're not to obsess over the end times, the last days, in terms of trying to figure all this stuff out. Instead, we're to obsess over setting up treasures in heaven and building the kingdom and looking for Jesus to return. That's what we're to be focused on. All right, so we've done the last hour. Now we've done the Antichrist. Now we're going to hit many Antichrists. John makes it clear that the Antichrist has not yet come he makes this really fascinating statement. Even now, many antichrists have already come and are present amongst you. And these antichrists, he says, have a singular defining feature. He gives definition to it very clearly. He says they left the church. That's what he says. They went out from us, and he's referring to the church. They went out from us because they never really belonged to us. If they had belonged to us, they wouldn't have left. They left the church. Now, what I'm not saying <laughs> is that anyone who leaves New Point Church is the Antichrist, okay? What I am saying, it's not the local church per se, although that could very much be part of it. I mean, absolutely, that absolutely happens. What John's talking about is, they're leaving the faith. They're leaving what was known as the way. They're leaving the capital C church, if you will, at large. They're leaving behind orthodoxy. They're leaving behind sound doctrine. They're leaving behind all these things they had been taught and told about who Jesus is and their, his role in human history and then their role to play with that. What John seems to mean is these little antichrists had once been a part of the church. This is key in appearance. I don't know about you. This stuff's like, as it's, it may seem like it's not like uh, intense or whatever, but it's like scary stuff. Isn't it a little bit? Like, they'd once been a part of the church in appearance, but not in reality. And it wasn't that they just left the church and just went on their merry way. He says they were actually preaching anti-Christ doctrines and trying to drag others down with them as they went. So they didn't just say, guys, you know, like, it's time for me to, like, I just, I can't do it anymore, and, you know, wish you well, and, and you know, sign or see you later. It's not only am I leaving, but you're all deluded, so let me tell you what the truth is. Let me preach all these antichrist doctrines. Let me go against orthodoxy. Let me do all of these things. They're actively evangelizing the antichrist, basically. This, is, this for me, as I was preparing this, this is very, very, very deeply personal for me, like deeply personal. And if you allow me just for a couple minutes, like to step aside for a second, in the last, I'll just say three years, I can literally make a list. And I'm not talking about a list of celebrities, celebrity pastors who have left the faith. There have been plenty of those, and you're probably aware of at least some of those, okay? but I could make a significant list of people that I have personally pastored, have personally pastored with, have personally discipled, been a part of their life, people that I know all over who have rejected Jesus outright, who were like, who saw Jesus do amazing things in their lives and the lives of others. They saw all kinds of stuff happen. They were a part of the fellowship of communion of this family, right, of the church. And they have not only left behind the faith in the craziest ways imaginable, but they have been actively evangelistic in trying to drag others down with them. And I tell you, it, <laughs> I've heard this said once, and, and, and Pastor Lori can speak to this for sure as a counselor, but it's like I've heard that, you know, when, when women are hurt, they react a certain way, and they're better at displaying it. When guys get hurt, they're, they get angry. And I'm telling you, I've been beyond angry at times in this last couple of years. Of all, of, it seems like just constantly people abandoning the faith. And the, the thing about it is it's for, and I'm just going to be blunt here, 
It's like, it's for the stupidest reasons. It's for the stupidest reasons. It's like, you didn't, you didn't actually want to like study the Bible to figure out if what you believed was like true or real, or you didn't want to listen to, to people like that actually know what they're talking about. You were like reading blogs that were giving you the answers you already wanted to know. You were just looking for what you wanted to, to, be, to find, and then you took that as authority, and then you tried to say, well, but I, I'm going to convince some other people of this too. That's straight evil, guy. That's just evil. And I think we should have a righteous anger, and I've had to separate, like, we don't battle flesh and blood, all right? Like, not, this, this is just a look into the sometimes uh, levels of me that aren't fully sanctified yet. But, like, last summer I was sitting around with some friends, and we were talking about this because we'd have friends that had left the faith. And, again, just the stupidest, like, most infuriating ways. And I was like, all right, the next person that says they're not a Christian anymore is catching a beating, and I was like, I don't care who it is. It's nothing personal, but someone has to be made an example of. And I'm like, I would, guys, I would never really do that, probably, but I don't. But it's like that, le- and I'm using hyperbole, and uh, Carrie's like, don't talk about beating people up, like, from the stage. That's not what I'm, this is, I was so frustrated because it's like, how, oh, and, but this is what John's addressing here. They went out from us because they never really belonged to us. So I've had to ask myself, did they ever really believe? And those are hard things when these are people you actually like served with and alongside. And you saw, in some cases, these people saw miracles happen, like radical miracles that Jesus did. And I'm like, how can you, how could you see that and then walk away? And this is what John is talking about. But what this, what this has made me realize more so in the last couple of years than ever before in my life, for sure, because it's reminded me of the season we're living in. There are, there are seasons, and I want the, our church, the church, to grow. I want it to spread like wildfire, the gospel of the kingdom, gospel of salvation. I want all that. But I think sometimes there's a season where you just got to shore up like what you have. Make sure everybody's got their stuff together. And you can do both at once, I think, but you just don't want to neglect Take things for granted. So here's a truth as we're getting kind of closer to the end here. This is, I'll, I'm speaking for Jordan. He was on vacation, so I'm putting words in his mouth. You'll notice this we statement. But we, Pastor Jordan and myself and the rest of the staff, elders, we don't want anyone here. We don't want anyone here swallowed up by new movements and doctrines which are against Jesus. We have that slide. There we go. We don't want anyone here swallowed anyone in this all caps. Anyone. <laughs> Here, swallowed up by new movements and doctrines which are against Jesus. We don't want anyone here derailed by believing something erroneous about Jesus. Like, we don't want to lose anybody. We don't want to lose anyone. We don't want anyone to get dragged aside or astray by all this stuff that's just nonsense. John says, who's a liar? But it's he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Makes it really clear. This was a major purpose of all of John's writing, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God the Son. In fact, John's stated reason for writing his gospel actually comes way late in the gospel towards the end. He says this, but these events are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why he took the time to do what he was doing, that you may believe These false teachers John was dealing with said Jesus was not the Christ, meaning they thought he was not the Son of God or God incarnate. They made Jesus into a mere man. And the same thing is going on today. And usually it doesn't happen with somebody who's been a Christian just all of a sudden coming out and going, Jesus is just a mere man. I just decided last night he's just a mere man. It doesn't usually happen like that. We talked about what insidious is. It usually goes in a totally different direction. It usually starts to come in through other outside doctrines that the church has held static for 2,000 years, but that all of a sudden now we're so enlightened, right? We know so much better like, than they did that like, oh, now what, Je- no, what Jesus actually meant by that, forget about 2,000 years of church history, what he actually meant, well, no, but I still believe in Jesus. And I'm like, you know what? You may say that now, but just give yourself some time. And I don't mean that, and it's a, it's a hard thing to say. It's a hard thing to say because you just know 
It's, you're not embracing just a bit of a different doctrine when you embrace, name your thing that's different. What you're embracing now is a different worldview. And it won't be long before you come to this place where you say that Jesus is not the Son of God, the unique Son of God. He's not the way, the truth, and the life. He's not all those things. He's just a mere man. The same thing as that was going on back then is going on today. So many people are practicing what I'll call Charles Schultz theology. You guys know who that is? Peanuts, created peanuts. Don't pick on Charles Schultz, he created the peanuts. Those guys are cute. Sorry, he made some dumb statements. He said this, this, is his, this was his like, statement on spirituality. I don't think I have this on the screen, but he said, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. Is there any, I found, I came across that randomly this week and I'm like, that'll fit perfectly. Like, is there any better like one like thing to sum up what's going on right now? Not, not, not in our culture, guys, even though that's part of it. I'm talking about within the church too. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely. That's, this, that's just insane. You know, I can sincerely believe that I could still go and play in the NBA. Why was, why'd you guys laugh? hard about that. I'll tell you, it ain't happening. I can believe it all I want. There's, there's a term that we use when someone believes something sincerely, but it's not true, and they keep believing, it's called crazy. It's a real technical, psychological term. And I don't mean to belittle anybody, but it's, that's what's going on right now. People want to claim we all worship the same God just by different names, People believe that all roads lead to the same God, despite the fact that all the religions of the world drastically contradict each other and articulate incredibly different theologies. John comes along. This is kind of the conclusion here. Mr. Black and White, right? he's been black and white in his text so far. He holds out a test. Does a person believe Jesus is God the Son? Do they believe that Jesus is God's anointed, the Messiah, the once and for all Savior of the world? Do they believe that? If they don't, they're not Christian. John's already given us two tests in chapter two for true Christian profession. Now we have our third. This is huge stuff as we talk about being in the season that we're in, having an awareness. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? Are you aware? So John gives us three tests. Here they are on the screen. Number one, do I live as Jesus lived? I talked about that three weeks ago. Do I live as Jesus lived? Am I trying to do that? Am I, through the power of the Holy Spirit, walking in the footsteps of my rabbi? Number two, do I guard my heart from the love of the world? Am I aware, am I cultivating an awareness that I'm not to love the things of this world? Do I know what they are, and am I working to not only just avoid the things of the world, but to embrace the things of the kingdom? And number three, do I believe that Jesus is God's Son, the Messiah, the Christ? John wants us to keep going in, that, in these things as a way of life, he wants us to confess with our mouth, but more importantly, our actions, our hearts, and our minds that Jesus is Lord. This is why he writes us close to the end here. As, as for you, think about us saying this to, to you guys and for ourselves as well. As for you, see that what you've heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his, what that's talking about, by the way, is not that you shouldn't listen like on a Sunday morning or like listen to podcasts or read stuff. What he's saying is there's no new doctrine to be found. There's no new enlightenment when it comes to Jesus. He's God incarnate, the Messiah. That, that settles it. That's what he's talking about. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, stay in him. Don't depart from him. Let the truth of Jesus, John says, continue to sink deeper and deeper into you. And I know that can be hard because as a culture, we like new things. We're attracted to them. We love hearing about new restaurants and new books and new movies and Knew this. Ecclesiastes says the eye never has enough of seeing nor the ear of hearing. Right? And that's okay. I like new stuff too. But when it comes to truth, new is not necessarily better. 
Paul addressed this idea to the churches in Galatia who were turning away as well to an updated gospel message. It was Jesus plus. And he said this, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Jesus and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, he says, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus. The gospel the apostles preach in scripture is the one which has eternal life attached to it. So let's stick with that one. We want to be a church that we don't lose anybody, that no one is swallowed up. Let me close again with this statement. We don't want anyone here swallowed up by new movements and doctrines which are against Jesus. We don't want anyone here derailed by believing something erroneous about Jesus. If there are stuff that people have been telling you that you've been hearing that you have questions about, that you're like, what is the truth of that? Or why are they do that? Or whatever. Please don't just try to take it on all by yourself. That's what family is for. That's what community is for. Reach out to somebody who knows more than you do. Have the humility to admit that somebody knows more than you do and ask them for help in discerning things. Reach out to myself or to Pastor Jordan. Talk to us. Like, what's going on? Why are people doing this? Why are they saying this or believing this? That's what we are here for, literally. That's the nature of what the word pastor is, to shepherd, to steward, to keep together. We want to talk with you about these things. We don't want to lose anyone. Be aware of the season that you're in. We're in the last hour. The Antichrist is coming, but even now, many Antichrists have come, and we know them because they left us. And if they left us, it's possible they never really belonged to us in the first place. It's tough stuff, a lot to think about on this holiday weekend, but it's important, important stuff. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you that you made us aware of the season that we're in, that you give us... (laughs) As John reminds us here, an anointing from the Holy Spirit, that if we remain in you, that we can stay the course, that we can walk the narrow path, that we will not be led astray by new teachings, new gospels, which are really no gospel at all. Jesus, I pray right now, right now, over New Point Church, for every person who's watching online, for every person who's sitting here, in this auditorium right now for every person who couldn't be here today for one reason or another that calls New Point Church their church home, every single person from this day forward, I pray that we would not lose anyone. I understand, Jesus, that people will move and there will be times where people don't go to our church anymore. But I pray that we don't lose anybody right now who's under our care, that nobody would turn away to false gospels, that nobody would turn away, that nobody would depart. Just give us that, Jesus. Make us unified. Let us be on the same page. Let us be aware of this season that we're in. Jesus, we trust you, and we trust the gift of the Holy Spirit to lead us in those ways. It's in your name we pray. Amen.